Welcome to Independent Truths with Scott Atlas, my new show that brings a uniquely rational perspective to the important issues facing our society today. And today it's a great pleasure to host Heather McDonald, one of our nation's most important voices in exposing truth, the necessary truths that are the foundation of any discussion about American society. Heather McDonald is the Thomas W. Smith Fellow at the Manhattan Institute. She's a contributing editor of City Journal and a New York Times bestselling author. She is a recipient of many prizes and awards for her writing on a range of topics, including higher education, policing and criminal justice reform, immigration, and race relations. Heather's newest book is called When Race Trumps Merit. Just been released. We have an important, a really necessary conversation about what we are witnessing in the United States, an unprecedented repudiation of the enforcement of law, of merit-based achievement in the fundamental history of this country, and hopefully a little bit about where do we go from here if we want to succeed as a free, prosperous, and what I think must be said, an ethical society. Thanks for joining us and stay tuned. Welcome to Independent Truths with Scott Atlas. Today's guest is Heather McDonald, one of our country's most important voices exposing truth and, hate to say it, but the importance of truth in any discussion about America's society today. Heather is the Thomas W. Smith Fellow at the Manhattan Institute, a contributing editor of City Journal and New York Times bestselling author. She is a recipient of the 2005 Bradley Prize, the 2022 Gene Kirkpatrick Prize for <laughs> Academic Freedom. Yeah, I saw you. From Encounter Books. <laughs> we shared a stage. That's great. And Heather has won many other awards and prizes for writing on a range of really the most controversial topics of all, higher education, immigration, police and police reform, race in America. Her writing has appeared in every major newspaper uh, and publication. And her newest book is just out, When Race Trumps Merit. Just been released. And in that book, she explains in her own words, quote, the foolish pursuit of undermining meritocracy in favor of equal outcome is sacrificing excellence, destroying beauty, and threatening lives, unquote. To finish up the intro, uh, Heather holds a BA in English from Yale, an MA in English from Cambridge University, and a JD from Stanford University Law School. Welcome, Heather. Great to be with you again, Scott. I wish we were in person, but uh, this is the second best. So thank you. This isn't so bad. Yeah. Yes. Thanks, really, for doing this. Um, there's so many things to talk about. Uh, you know, it, it's almost hard to know where to begin. So we're going to begin with your new book, you. When Race Trumps Merit. And in that book, I think you, you explain first the basis of what we are seeing today, which really has to be a historic cultural revolution in the United States. And the basis of that is something uh, that you call and that has been called, quote, disparate impact. For our listeners, uh, explain what that is and give us the brief history of that. Well, let me start with a concrete example, Scott. For decades, uh, blacks have been suing police departments and fire departments, claiming that those departments discriminate against black applicants 
in screening uh, for firefighting or for police jobs. And the only evidence that is ever presented in these discrimination lawsuits is the fact that blacks fail the entrance exam at higher rates than whites. They're not claiming that there's actual intentional discrimination going on. It's just that an entrance exam that asks for, let's say, a ninth grade level of literacy of for an, a firefighter or a police officer so that that firefighter can read the instructions on you know how not to mix chemicals in a disastrous way in fighting a fire or asks of a police officer that he can read and understand the patrol guide uh, if blacks fail those those minimal tests of literacy and and maybe mathematical skill that's a, a racist test because it is said to have a disparate impact on blacks. And the solution to these lawsuits, which are almost inevitably successful, is to simply throw out the test. We conclude that it's a racist test and we will lower our standards in order not to have any kind of disparate impact on black applicants. And that idea that if blacks fail a meritocratic standard at higher rates, that meritocratic standard is by definition racist without any further evidence of, you know, the usual fictional idea that the SAT say ask about regattas. You know, those types of questions never existed, but if they had, they've been purged for, for decades. Uh, you don't have to show actual discrimination in the test, merely the impact itself. And that idea started within the law. Court decisions said, okay, we can no longer find much intentional discrimination among employers in the United States, but we still want to have a whole lot of discrimination lawsuits going on. So we're going to now say that if an employer has a test for employment that has a disparate impact on blacks, it's a racist test. That idea has now spread across the cultural landscape. As you've seen, Scott, it's tearing down meritocratic standards in science, in medicine, in law enforcement, and even uh, most astoundingly and tragically in the arts. And even frighteningly, uh, that kind of disparate impact is, is true now for all interview processes. Every result, every asymmetry... Yes. In, in a career position or any job, his termed uh, must be on the base of racial discrimination. I was, I'm a frequent flyer, and particularly on one airline, United Airlines. And I was called up because I'm such a frequent flyer into the cockpit uh, by a couple of the pilots, oh, wow. and we were talking. Huh. And the pilot said, I ought to be very concerned about the training program for pilots <laughs> Because there is this overt uh, intent, again, nothing to do with merit on the basis of outcome, a percent of people. And, you know, we always hear this sort of thing about uh, the reality of such a determination in pilots, in brain surgeons is the classic example. Uh, you know, don't, don't we care about competence anymore? I mean, this is frightening uh, and I, I just think it's hard to explain on the basis of simply being a rational person. We are apparently uh, either sleepwalking or so cowed by the phony racism charge 
that we are willing to put scientific progress at risk, to put lives at risk, whether it's through uh, massively lowering standards to qualify as a doctor uh, or getting rid of law enforcement prosecution policing because that has a disparate impact on black criminals, not because the criminal justice system is racist. Uh, we're so cowed by those charges or we're simply, I don't know, fat and lazy and indifferent and want to turn our eyes away uh, from the consequences of these decisions. But Scott, as you say, it is absolutely true. It is impossible to find a corner of American experience, American effort, American institutions that is not being torn down by the phony racism charge. As long as racism remains the only allowable explanation for any racial disparities in any institution, it is all coming down. I cannot stress this enough. Everything you have relied upon for security, for safety, for being able to have competent doctors or accountants or lawyers, it is all coming down because of this disparate impact con concept. And we have to arm ourselves with the facts and provide the real explanation for why we do not have proportional representation across our institutions. Right, which is, a, of course, a very complicated question uh, to answer. And this might uh, be part of the attraction of this theory is that it's such a simple explanation that everything else is ignored. Uh, and the solution is very simple. Simply adjust the percentage of people if you believe in this uh, fallacy. I mean, the irony of all ironies to me, and I've, I've had these discussions with people uh, like Glenn Lowry recently and others, the irony is this society has done so much for uh, changing the uh, discrepancies, the discrimination that clearly existed in the past. Uh, and it's fact that, as you point out, this is now a standard part of, of all walks of our society, all institutions to promote and accommodate uh, minorities in a preferential fashion. Uh, and we've been doing this for more than half a century. And whether, uh, you know, it, you have to wonder, uh, th it's not just ironic, but is that also pointing out the failure of those preferential policies, that this is still uh, not enough? Preferential policies are poison, if I can use an alliteration there. Uh, they cause further racial gaps. They cause further division. Uh, they are an absolute burden on their alleged beneficiaries. It is not, uh, you're not doing anybody any favors by admitting them to an institution under lower standards than your peers. And let's take this out of the race context for a moment, Scott, and put it into the sex context. If MIT decided to admit me because it wanted more sex parity or gender parity in its student body, something that I think is completely irrelevant and should never be a goal of a university, and I had 650s on my math SATs on an 800-point scale, and I, I was being admitted under lower preferences, and my peers who were admitted on a sex-blind basis had 800s near, you know, per perfect score or close to it 
on their math SATs. I would flounder in my first year of, of school at MIT. I would likely flunk out of my calculus class because that class would legitimately be pitched at the average level of my peers. And the diversity bureaucracy would step up and say, oh, let us tell you why you're feeling out of place academically here. It's because you are existing in a uh, patriarchal, misogynist environment of rape culture and you're, you're being discriminated against. I would not be told the truth, which is that I had been admitted under a very lower standard of admission. That is true for the so-called beneficiaries of race preferences as well. Blacks and Hispanics are almost the only group that are systematically put at such a massive disadvantage by being catapulted into academic environments for which they are not competitively qualified. I am not saying that blacks should not go to college. To the contrary, yes, they should, but they should go to college on the same criteria as everybody else with students with which they share their academic credentials. Now, if I can just get back to some of your other points here, you said, well, it's a complicated question to answer why we have these disparities and why a colorblind okay. meritocratic standard doesn't produce a Alzheimer's research lab that is 13% black neurologist, which is the population at large in the United States of U.S., or a uh, you know, a, a cancer research lab that is 13% black oncologists or a, a law firm partner group that is 13% black partners. It's actually very simple why we don't have those racial proportions, Scott. It is the academic skills gap. It, given right. the extent of that gap, you can have diversity or you can have meritocracy. You cannot have both. And we are deciding as a culture because we are so terrified of the fact that the skills gap is not closed for decades, despite efforts that are nonstop by both government and philanthropists to close it, that we're saying the only allowable explanation must be racism. And Americans turn their eyes away from the great academic disparities, the crime disparities. They don't want to hear them. But if I could just put one example of that out for your viewers, Scott, 66% of black 12th graders do not possess even partial mastery of basic 12th grade math skills defined as being able to do arithmetic or read a graph. 66% are not even partially uh, competent in those skills. The number of, of black 12th graders who are proficient in 12th grade math, and that's defined as being able to calculate with ratios, is 6%. And the number who were advanced in 12th grade math is too small to show up statistically in a national sample. Now, those skills gaps never close. They show up again on the SATs, the LSATs, the MCATs, the GREs, the GMATs, and they mean that you cannot have proportional representation in meritocratic institutions without massively lowering standards. Right. I mean, the 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 evidence is is very sort of straightforward, as you're pointing out the, the explanation. What I meant by complicated is the solution okay, to these true. differences. Right. And that, that's quite complicated. Uh, 
because I, I just wonder historically, and I don't know if you have the data on this, you probably do if anyone does, what is that number of proficiency, what, is that, what has happened to that number over decades? I wonder if that's been lowering or has that been uh, unchanged for decades in the proficiency uh, of, of certain student groups by race or other on math and science. Uh, you know, this, this sort of goes to the, the so-called, uh, hate to use a Kamala Harris phrase, but root cause of things. You wonder what's happened uh, since, you know, the 60s uh, when I was a, a little kid in Chicago uh, and you look at the videos of, of families going out or going to the baseball game or whatever. Yeah. And even though things were very uh, difficult for minorities then and, and discrimination was widespread, there was a family unit, I think. There was a family, there was a pride yeah. uh, in your family. I, I just wonder the breakdown of a lot of different things has happened. I wonder what's happened in the proficiency in school of young children. Well, I couldn't agree more. It breaks my heart when I see these pictures of bourgeois blacks in the 40s and 50s doing everything they can to live up to America's standards of middle-class behavior. And at that time, America was treating blacks with just unthinkable, heartbreaking cruelty, gratuitous nastiness. You know, you see Ella Fitzgerald and, and Duke Ellington, you know, dressed to the nines, and they're still being excluded from restaurants and hotels. Right. And it's like we're past ships passing in the night. And then amazingly, miraculously, nobody would have predicted it. Uh, we really did change society, went from white privilege to what is, frankly, I'm going to be very uh blunt here, a universal system of black privilege. Uh, every institution has open arms for blacks, twisting itself into knots to hire and promote as many blacks as possible. And yet now you have a rise of an oppositional culture that does not embrace those bourgeois norms. But as far as academic achievement, I don't think it was hugely better in the 60s. There was a time, a brief time in the 80s when those skills gaps were somewhat narrowing, uh, but then they that progress stalled and it has not gotten any better. Uh, and in you know your field of the just cruel and and pathological school shutdowns, uh, we do know that the academic skills gaps have widened uh, post COVID because of the uh, moving to so-called remote learning, which is a kind of a contradiction in terms, it turns out. Yeah. I mean, there's no question that uh, even if you just take it that the efforts are well-intended, there, there, you know, Milton Friedman said many, many things which are important, but one was you should judge a program on the basis of the results and not the intent. Right. And, you know, there, there's nothing that, that to me has been more destructive than uh, some of these extreme, uh, using a term loosely, affirmative action policies that have really uh, undermined the the achievements of people from minority groups, particularly, who actually do achieve the standards that are necessary to excel. Because I think many people assume, okay, well, you got in because of affirmative action. You have the job because of affirmative action. I, it's so uh, detrimental to individual achievement. And of course, individual achievement uh, and the desire for that is the basis for success. Right. 
uh, I mean, there is there can be no question about that. And you know what? What strikes me also, I think you and I are of the same vintage. Uh, you know, when we grew up, uh, there was this um, you know uh, extreme uh, admiration for Martin Luther King Jr. because of his aspirational colorblind society. And, you know, not only has that vision disappeared, uh, and no one even talks about Martin Luther uh, King Jr. anymore right. at all, but his aspiration was that everyone uh, reap the rewards of the United States. It was a given that this was the land of opportunity, and he wanted to extend it, uh, and rightfully so, to everyone. And today, instead... Uh, we have a theme that the country and everything it stands for is the problem and it has to be torn down. No one talks about colorblind society. And, and what's more worrisome to me than anything, and I've said this before, but we seem to be entering an era of extreme racism. We are, uh, you know, we're in this uh, what is overtly anti-white racism, a vilification, a demonization of a group that to me uh, brings back the horrendous examples of the demonized populations of Jewish people in World War II. Is that where we're headed? Uh, you know, it's a sort of a stark analogy, uh, and I don't mean to speak with hyperbole, but it's, it's, it's very frightening now what's happening. Well, you know, it's very risky these days to use the Holocaust analogy. You're going to be called out on it, but, but it is absolutely the case uh, that all you need to do now to take out an individual or an institution is to append the epithet white to that individual or institution. You can see this on a practically daily basis in the New York Times. If the New York Times wants to discredit an institution or an individual, it would just say it's a white institution or, you know, predominantly white. Uh, and, you know, there's an amazing set of double standards in the coverage of crime. The only time that the press, and it's not just the left-wing press, liberal press, it's even places like the New York Post, the only time that the race of a criminal will ever be given is if that is a white criminal. Otherwise, the, the race of a criminal is always left out because it is they are so disproportionately black, uh, and the race of victims will only be given out if they are black with a white perpetrator. Otherwise, the usual configuration in crime, which is black criminal, black victim, or black criminal, white victim, you will never get the race of that. It is it, it, and, and we're supposed to pretend this. We live, Scott, today by a whole set of fictions. It's just oh, incredible. Yeah. I mean, we're supposed to go around pretending along with the with, what Joe, President Joe Biden claims all the time that uh Black parents are right to fear that their children will be killed by a cop or a white person every time those children step outside. That's completely insane. Yes, black children are at much higher risk of their lives than white children because black teenagers are going around engaging in these barbaric drive-by shootings. Whites are not killing blacks. Here's the reality. When you look at interracial violence between blacks and whites and whites and blacks, Blacks commit 87% of all interracial violence. So it is blacks who are a threat to whites, not vice versa. But we live these fictions. And it's not just silent. You know, you say we're not, nobody's talking about 
Martin Luther King's colorblindness and, you know, I see the content of your character, not your skin. It's that if you actually talk about that, you will be accused of of uh, con- committing an, a micro, if not a macro, aggression on blacks. You know, you know the mm-hmm. phrase, if you don't see my color, you don't see me. So it is a explicit repudiation of that. And the reason is, is that America's elites, as I said before, are terrified that the skills gap has not closed and will not close. And so they are preemptively making sure that the only allowable explanation for that skills gap is racism. Uh, and and they don't want to move to a colorblind uh, system. I mean, you know, the, one of the clear uh, problems here is uh, there's an obvious political nature motivation to this. I mean, when you see uh, you know, Nancy Pelosi go in African garb and kneel down. I mean, I I think it's uh, it's an insult. If I were, it's hard to say if I were an African American and and have any credibility or real insight. <laughs> and I realize that, but I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna take that liberty and say I was personally offended by that. Uh, you know, even as a as a white person, I was offended by this sort of blatant political you know, posturing. Uh, but I, I think that we we all have lost any kind of uh, trust and, and a lot of us have lost all respect for politicians. So we sort of, that's not a change. But what, what is a change to me is the role of the media here. Because I think, uh, you know, we, we like to pretend that no one watches TV, no one reads a regular newspaper. It's just social media or internet. But the, but the fact is that the media is extremely powerful, extremely influential, whether we like it or not. And I, I believe that it's not it's not only censorship. It's simply that there is a loss of truth seeking in the media. The journalism field has really betrayed the public good because they don't talk about the data. They distort, they, like you mentioned, they, they vilify with editorialized statements. And I think uh, you and I are, are similar in that we really try to have our discussions based on the data. Uh, you know, what, what has been your experience uh, you know, dealing with the media and how you see it today compared to how it was even uh, as recently as 10, 20 years ago? With this. Yeah, I'm not sure. You know, back in the 90s, we already saw that many press outlets were basically admitting that they were not going to publish the race of criminal suspects any longer because they were so disproportionately black. And they thought, well, that will just create prejudice in all these, you know, primed to be bigoted white Americans. A, a, a censorship that was totally against the public interest because if there's a criminal suspect out there who, let's say, has not been apprehended, you want the public to know everything about the right. offender description in order to get them off the streets. But the press was deciding, no, it's much more important to fight the latent bigotry of Americans than try to make sure that you know more people are not robbed or carjacked or whatever uh, by people that haven't been picked up. So I would say that the bad faith with regards to the press uh, has been with us for at least since the 1990s, if not the 1980s. The whole discussion of affirmative action, 
uh, was mm-hmm. and racial preferences. I prefer the term racial preferences to affirmative action because affirmative action can still lead people to think it just means extra outreach or the the thumb on the proverbial scale between two otherwise qualified identically qualified applicants. No, that is not what affirmative action means. It means massive racial preferences, massive double standards in in uh, admissions criteria. Um, so I. I think the press has been moving in this direction for a long time. Uh, but yes, I mean, you say that I've appeared on every, been published in every major outlet or appeared in every major outlet. Not for a while, I have to say. Yes, absolutely. You know, I was asked to come on, the last time I was asked to come on CNN was when my book, The War on Cops, came out. And there'd been a, a shooting in Dallas of five white police officers by a black nationalist that seemed to be right in line with the thesis of my book. And CNN asked me to come on the next day. And then at the last minute, they canceled uh, because they simply didn't want anybody that would be on that would rebut this narrative that we're living through an epidemic of racially biased police shootings of blacks. And uh, I, you know, I'm prepared to say that there's no government agency more dedicated to the proposition that black lives matter than the police. So. I, I, it has yeah. gotten worse. I, I think, you know, the problem is that the universities keep belching out every year uh, ever more insanely narcissistic, ignorant young people who go on to enter the New York Times newsroom, editorial staff, corporations, and, and they keep pushing us further to the left. Yeah, I think this is a, a key point here is that the what I call the ideological takeover of campuses uh, has been going on for decades. Yes. I mean, we, we've seen this. We knew this. We, meaning parents, professors, uh, just simply observers of what's happening. And it wasn't viewed as so harmful as it is now realized, I think, because now I think we're seeing sort of the end game of this, uh, which is the result. We've had decades of this. Uh, you know, I don't know if it's it's too strong to say the word brainwashing, but we have certainly seen a generation plus of young people come out uh, in their sheltered existence on campus uh, with this victimization and these diatribes of uh, really inane things that instead of being the youth uh, or the youthful sort of revolution or whatever against status quo, this is the product of the status quo people, the people in power, the elites. You know, I wonder, uh, just to touch on something else, which is I always think uh, the pandemic, it's not about the pandemic. It's not about the pandemic management. It's about what was exposed by the pandemic. Right. And I sort of feel this is another example of something that is related to the pandemic that we just went through. That is, uh, we had a society, and we still do, particularly where I live in California, that is still uh, grappling with fear, loss of what I call rational thought. Yeah. It's, an, it's a shockingly passive population, particularly here. Uh, I mean, there's nowhere more passive uh, other than China <laughs> and then in California. With me. Uh, there's this passive acceptance of arbitrary, pseudoscientific, nonsensical rules, a denial of all data that shows that the rules were wrong and are wrong. And now we have, in the, in my observation, 
in the November elections of 2022 that of the nine governors running for re-election, including the mayor of D.C., eight of them were re-elected, and these were in the 10 worst-performing, most stringent lockdown states. People re-elected leaders yep. who destroyed their own families. Yep. Uh, it's just shocking to me, and I wonder, is this sort of some kind of a sado masochistic or self-flagellation culture now where we are we uh the 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 people the whites in society have become uh sort of uh intent on destroying themselves it's a very bizarre uh it's sort of a, a a a play going on here to me i don't see any historical precedent to that do you no, it is absolutely without precedent, and you're absolutely right. We are canceling ourselves as a civilization. The degree of hatred that the leaders of our most important institutions have now directed on the very traditions that it is their privilege to curate and pass on is utterly nauseating. I've never seen anything like it. Whites are a self-canceling group. There's no question about it. They are lying down, you know, saying we are in endlessly guilty of everything, no historical knowledge. Now, I've been on a audible sort of reading mission for the last two years, Scott, of reacquainting myself with American civil rights history, black history, black literature. It's, it's, it is a very tragic, tragic past. And, and I actually do think that sometimes a conservative narrative about America that leaves that out, that it is couched exclusively in terms of, or predominantly in terms of our commitment to freedom and equality and opportunity, it I, I it, it rubs me the wrong way, and I, I feel the need to always say, but see blacks. That having been said, though, as, as rightly uncomfortable we are with our past, it is no worse than any other civilization. No worse and a lot better. The, a lot better. The type of of exclusion and and vilification and and violence against the so-called marginalized other in every other civilization and even still today is far far worse than what we've got now. Whether it's Africa, whether it's China whether it's the Arab world, those all were much, much more uh, lethal and totalitarian in their slavery, in their misogyny, in their, certainly now in their anti-LGBTQ stance. I mean, you go try and hold a gay pride march in Uganda right now and see how far you get. Um, or Nigeria, for that matter. So, yeah, the, I mean, this is obviously the the key thing is that okay, the United States has a a past, uh, and we have done more than any other society to reverse that. And I think everybody knows that it's not a coincidence that millions of people want to come to the United States right. every year. Uh, so many that we can't even handle it. I, I think you bring up something very important, which is uh, given that we're sort of entering this presidential campaign again as an incessant election campaign in the United States, 
you know, we need a leader who understands that they're actually uh, going to be the leader for everyone, even those who didn't vote for them. And I, I think we haven't had that for several presidents in a row now, at least three where the president didn't understand that you're actually the leader for everyone, not just those who voted you in. And I think this is one of the problems. We have a tremendous lack of leadership in the country because right now we, we like to talk about policies. We like to talk about a sort of uh, specific uh, details of of policy, but we are to the point, in my view, where we need moral leadership. We need ethical leadership more than ever. Uh, and it's shocking to me that we have gone down this pathway. It's frightening. All of us who have kids are worried about the country we're handing off to people. And that leads me into my sort of last question, and, and I'm going to have you back because we have so many things to talk about. But, uh, you know, what what do... You know, you, you give a lot of talks. I give a lot of talks on campus. And, you know, what do we tell young people, uh, people coming out of college, people coming out of high school, entering the workforce who who uh, who understand? Because I think everybody with a brain understands that trying hard to do well is the key to doing well. Uh, you know, what do we tell them and who are, who are beginning their own families and embarking on careers? Well... Do we want to be honest or do we want to sort of give them a false sense of, of opportunity? Because if you're honest and you've got a a white son who's heterosexual, it's very hard to tell him honestly that if he puts in an effort, uh, he will be rewarded as he's earned an, a reward. Because right now, uh, the world is absolutely biased against heterosexual white males. Uh, so your sons and grandsons are screwed unless we can get over this insane blaming of meritocratic standards for having a disparate impact. Uh, so I that this is a mystery question to me. And you talk about sort of the need Perfect. for moral leadership. I don't I'm not a political um have any any insight into political strategy so i don't know if we need a leader that is would actually be honest about naming what's hindering american progress right now which is the racial obsession or if you take the high road and don't even talk about that and use simple bromides i i, I don't think it's quite fair to say that I mean, every every president, when he takes office, says, I'm here for all the people, uh, and I'm not quite sure it, within yeah. the context of actual partisan, real partisan political divides, uh, how you govern that, that doesn't have some bias towards one's political worldview uh, that... Of course. So, so, But I do... Yeah, I, I, I'm just very concerned that... Uh, I'm not sure I see a resolution of these hugely polarized groups of people in the United States on the horizon. I, you know, I'm, I don't want to be negative. I'm sure you don't want to be negative either, but it's hard to look at what's happening and see a, a, a very positive outcome uh, without very, very uh, serious leadership stepping up and it, it's going to have to be from all different races, all different skin colors, all different uh, ethnic groups, or there will be no credibility, I feel. Well, yeah, I mean, it's I, very difficult. 
I, I have a view of what needs to be said. I have no idea if that is politically feasible. I believe that the only way that we're going to defeat this phony racism narrative that holds that any racial disparity in any institution is a result of racism and therefore the institutional standards must be torn down, I believe that the only way to actually drive a stake through the heart of the left's narrative is to give the facts as to why that those disparities exist, whether it's the academic skills gap or the massive criminal offending gap. Uh, because otherwise, without that, the left wins. If you can't talk about behavior, if you can't talk about culture, it sure as hell looks feasible that maybe we are a systemically racist society because there are ongoing racial disparities. So the facts are the only thing that helps. I don't know, though, uh, what happens to leaders who get up and tell those facts. I'm often asked to speak to police officers and police chiefs, and they say, well, tell us what we can do to defend our officers. And I say, look at you, police chief. Look at you, sheriff. You are letting your police officers or your deputies twist in the wind of this phony racism charge because they will have a disparate impact on black criminals if they enforce the law. Here's what you have to do. You have to get up in every press conference and give the data about criminal victimization, which happens overwhelmingly to blacks, and criminal offending, which sadly, again, nobody wants to hear this, is committed overwhelmingly disproportionately by blacks. You have to get those facts out there, force the press to report them, because if you don't, we're still going to assume that because we have criminal disparities or disparities in our prison population, we've got a racist criminal justice system. But these police chiefs are cowards. So we have a That's right. we have a distinction between what needs to be said and what feels politically possible, and I, I don't know how to bridge it. So that sort of leaves it for you and I, Scott, who are not in the political realm, to do everything we can to get those facts out there to try and make it politically possible to stand up against the racism narrative. I, I couldn't agree more. There is nothing that can be done short of saying the facts yes. over and over again. Yes. And, you know, whether facts prevail in the end, I don't know, but I know for sure that facts matter. And, and you know, without facts, we have no society at all. So uh, we're not going to look, we're not looking at a short-term solution. Uh, we're not looking at a smooth transition to some kind of a peaceful nirvana society. Uh, and we're not even saying that people's opinions uh, shouldn't be stated very clearly. But uh, I like to tell people when I'm talking about how to do public policy, the first part is to know the facts. Only then can you form opinions. Right. It doesn't work the other way around. Right. But I think we'll, we'll have to leave it at there, Heather. Otherwise, I could talk to you all day and I'm sure you have other things to do. But thank you so much for coming on, and uh, I hope I see you again soon. Thank you, Scott. If I can just respond quickly to your COVID point. Yes, we are a fearful, safetyist, feminized culture that is willing to say that safety takes priority over risk-taking, entrepreneurialism, and, and you know, a, 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 a phony sense of fear, and it is absolutely nauseating. So thank you for fighting back against our COVID lies. Yes. And, I, you know, I think uh, we, we have seen, uh, you know, your your terms, uh, the weakness of American culture yeah. is so shocking, given the reputation and the foundation of this country uh, in our previous generations, our parents, <laughs> our grandparents. It's, it's so stunning 
to see what's happening. Uh, I'm hoping that the young generation, who's so far their their contributions have been sort of selfies and TikTok, uh, this kind of stuff. I, I hope uh, the 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 strong younger generation members step up and assume a position of leadership. And I'm I'm trying to do that with some of the entities that I'm involved with is to uh, really mentor, network, and inspire young people well, who are out there. They, they, need to, they need to realize this is too important. You can't, you can't sit back. You got to step up. Focus on the males, Scott. It's the males that need to be told you are not toxic. Because if, if males get completely marginalized and disappeared, which is the effort that's going on in elite culture, civilization ends. Males gave us civilization, yep. uh, and and when if they get permanently cast aside, we're gonna just everything will crumble. Okay, well we'll have to leave it on that <laughs> <laughs> that warning note, Heather. Good talking to you. Thank, Thank you, you again for being on. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Independent Truths with Scott Atlas. If you want to find out more about today's guest, Heather McDonald, check out her Manhattan Institute webpage and Heather's Twitter account. And don't forget, subscribe to our show on YouTube, as well as Spotify, Apple, Google, and anywhere else you're listening to podcasts right now. I'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.